hope you enjoyed a conclusion of Poison in the Colony. I'm going to take this moment to read the author's note and acknowledgements. I think this is really important to hear from the author, especially from a historical fiction novel. Author's note, I am often asked how much of a book is real and how much is from my imagination. In Poison in the Colony, I have recounted the most significant events of those years as faithfully as I could, relying on historical records and accounts that were written by the people who were there. The story is a combination of what really did happen and what could have happened. Each character in the book either was a real person or in case of some of the minor characters such as Cicely or William, bears the name of a real person taken from the records. There is one exception to this, Leon, the Italian glassmaker who was kind and helpful to Bermuda. I had no records for him, and so I named him after my Italian grandfather. This book is similar to Blood on the River and that as I had to do with Samuel Collier, I had to invent a personality and characteristics for my main character, Virginia Layden. As I pondered who Virginia was and what she would be like, I began to get a clear picture of her as someone with a gift or curse of what was called in those days, the second sight. In modern times, it might well be called having a strong intuitive sense. Virginia calls it the knowing because that is how she experiences it and she has no other reference for it. My inspiration for this trait in Virginia came from a good friend of mine who is both extremely intuitive and a descendant of the first Jamestown settlers. Her ancestor plays a bit part in the story. I knew from talking to my friend that this gift has caused grief and danger in her own life and in the lives of her forebearers who also had this ability. She remains steadfast in the knowledge that she thinks this gift is from God and is to be used in service to him. In the days of witch hunts, this ability was often misunderstood, sometimes misused, and would no doubt have been a potentially lethal liability. It was only after I had decided upon Virginia having this trait that I discovered some very interesting facts about events in Jamestown. Virginia's mother, along with Jane Wright, sometimes written as Joan or Joan with an E, the left-handed midwife, were assigned to make shirts for the colonists and given bad thread. They were thus framed for the crime of stealing thread from the colony, tried by Governor Dale, pronounced guilty, and brutally whipped. Anne Layden miscarried the child she was carrying. Why were they framed? Being left-handed was often seen as witch-like, and being a midwife and a healer with herbs, as many midwives were, was also seen as possible witch behavior. Having a bad outcome for a patient with a birth or an illness could bring on the accusations. Then I discovered that Jane Wright was the first person to be formally accused of witchcraft in the Virginia colony in September of 1626. Something was telling me I was on the right track with giving Virginia this special ability. The testimony given by Charles during Virginia's trial is taken from the actual testimony during a later witch trial in the Virginia colony, that of Grace Sherwood. Yes, a woman actually said that Grace Sherwood came into her room at night, sat on her, and then went out through the keyhole as a black cat. Poison in the Colony covers the true historical events that occurred during those years, though Virginia's part in them is my own invention. All we really know about Virginia Layden is that she was the first English child born in Jamestown. She and her family lived in Jamestown. Then her parents were given land in Elizabeth City, and the family moved there to their own farm. They thrived and survived and were still there with Virginia and her three young sisters, Alice, Catherine, and baby Margaret for the census of 1624. What about Bermuda? 
He was born on the island of Bermuda to Mr. and Mrs. Eason, but after that, I cannot find him. So for him too, I had to make up his personality and desires. Did he dream of making glass and become a glassmaker when the glass house was started up again? We will never know. But the events around the glass house, when it was started, when it was abandoned, and then started up again with the Italian glass workers are all accurate. Vincenzo was a real person and was as violent as I have depicted him. His wife was sent back to Italy because the governor feared Vincenzo would kill her, and he did take a crowbar to the big furnace and break it after the men had worked for weeks to repair it. The true parts of Angela's story are that she was brought to Jamestown on the treasurer as a stolen slave and was either sold or escaped from the ship. It is also true that she was sent to live as a servant for Captain and Mrs. Pierce, who paid her purchase price. Sometimes her name is printed in the records as Angelo, but this is incorrect because that is the male form of the name. Anansi tales are believed to have originated in Ghana and were known for, from Senegal to Ngongo, located in present-day Angola, where Angelo was from. For the character of Charles, I simply took his name from the census records and gave him that nasty personality. Apologies to the real Charles of Jamestown. Chapoke was an Indian youth who lived with the colonists. I do not know if he ever worked or stayed with Virginia and her family, but he was living in Elizabeth City with the colonists after the massacre in 1624. What of the controversy about how Pocahontas died? The English version of the events has always been that she fell ill from a common disease such as tuberculosis and perished. However, in 2007, Dr. Linwood, Little Bear Custolo, and Angela L. Daniel, Silver Star, representatives of the Mattaponi tribe in Virginia, published the true story of Pocahontas, the other side of history. In this book, they share the sacred Mattaponi oral history that has been handed down through generations, beginning with Pocahontas's sister, Matachana, and her husband, Uda Matamakan, or Tomakomo, who were with Pocahontas the night she died. The sacred history says that she was fine and healthy when she went to have dinner with her husband, John Rolfe, and Captain Argyll. After dinner, she came to her room and was suddenly ill, vomiting and convulsing, and soon died. It looked very much as though she had been poisoned at dinner. As with so many things in history, we will never know for sure what actually happened. Mr. George Thorpe really did hang two dogs after natives said they were afraid of them. He was trying hard to convince the natives to send their children to his school and somehow thought this would help his cause. The natives were quite insulted by his constant attempts at re-educating their children. When he was killed in the massacre, they treated his body with the contempt reserved for enemies to show their displeasure with him. Nematanu was a warrior who wore feathers and a swan's wings on his arm and was seen as magical and immortal by his people in Virginia. He had been in many battles and had never been injured, so his fellow warriors believed that English muskets could not affect him. The colonists named him Jack of the Feather and did not respect him nearly as much as his people did. It is also, excuse me, sadly true that when Nematanu came back from his trading trip with Mr. Morgan, wearing Mr. Morgan's cap and unable to explain what happened because of the language barrier, he was indeed shot by the English muskets. As he died, he begged with his few English words to be buried in Jamestown so that his people would not find out that he could be killed by a musket after all. Many historians believe that the killing of Nematanu was pivotal in Chief Opakanafa's decision to move forward with his plan for the March Massacre. Sometimes it has been reported 
incorrectly that the 1622 massacre happened on Good Friday. This is why I have shown in the story that Easter came weeks after that fateful day. Dates and calendars that far back can be confusing. The colonists were still going by the Julian calendar. And so for them, New Year's Day was March 25th, which means that the attack actually happened on March 22nd, 1621. Since our modern calendar has New Year's Day falling on January 1st, the date is officially reported as March 22nd, 1622. There was another massacre years later on April 18th, 1644, that occurred on Maundy Thursday, the Thursday before Easter. It is interesting to note that in both 1622 and 1644, the attacks happened one day shy of the third quarter moon. That is the moon that lit Virginia's way as she walked past the barn and heard Chapoke's anguish that morning. For primary source material about the prophecy that was given to Chief Palatan by his high priests on pages 47 through 49, see William Starchy, The History of Travel into Virginia, the first book of the decade 1612, reprinted in Edward Wright Hale edition. Jamestown Narratives, Eyewitness Accounts of the Virginia Colony, the First Decade and an interview in London, reprinted in Jamestown Narratives, page 881. A word about music and dance. Jamestown was the site of the first mixing of musical traditions from Europe, Africa, and North America. Music and dance languages that all can speak. The combining of rhythms, instruments, and dance steps from these three distinct areas of the world has resulted in some of the forms we now know as traditional American music and dance. For example, the banjo was born of West African stringed instruments, and the fiddle has a long tradition in Europe. These two instruments come together in American old-time string band music. Traditional dance music from Dongo, Algonquian traditional dance, and Irish step dancing were first introduced to each other during the music jams in Jamestown. Many dance historians believe that African, Native American, and British traditions later combined to create the quiet upper body toe and heel tapping, high stepping moves of Appalachian clogging. As both a musician and a dancer, it was fascinating to write about these jam sessions in early Jamestown and imagine that first coming together of this melting pot of music and dance. Try this, watch clips of each of these types of dance and see if you can discern which elements of each became incorporated into traditional Appalachian clogging. There are several ways to continue to experience what it was like in the Virginia colony during the 1600s. Jamestown Settlement is where you will find the ships, cottages, muskets, an Indian village, reenactors, and even chickens all working together to bring those early years of the settlement to life. To see the archeological dig, artifacts, and parts of the original Jamestown church, visit historic Jamestown next door. There are also descendants of the Powhatan Empire still living in Virginia. There are tribal museums to explore and powwow celebrations that are open to the public with drumming, singing, dancing, and other traditional arts. For more information about Jamestown or to find out more about its history online, go to historyisfun.org backslash Jamestown settlement or historicjamestownwithane.org and virginia.org backslash Virginia Indians. Your time travel experience awaits. Acknowledgements. I would like to thank the many fourth and fifth graders who wrote me letters to tell me how much they wanted a sequel to Blood on the River, Jamestown 1607. This book is for you. I would also like to thank my editor, Tracy Gates, for her belief in me and in this book, and for always knowing what my stories need to make them better. Many thanks to Nancy Brennan for designing the book so beautifully, to Bagram 
for the gorgeous cover, and to the careful copy editors who do so much to help keep details accurate. Janet Paschal, Abigail Powers, Krista Alberg, Marinda Valentini, Laura Styers, and Caitlin Severini. For my research, I depended heavily upon some of the same sources I used in Blood in the River. I pored over the first-person accounts written by the colonists themselves. I went back to my notes from interviews with historians at Historic Jamestown and from powwows held by several Virginia Indian tribes. Then there were the new things I needed to learn about, such as what it feels like to shoot one's first deer, what it's like to be highly intuitive, and what you would do with a live fish in a canoe. These days, the internet can answer many questions, but I still find interviews to be an invaluable source. And so, I would like to thank my willing interviewees, Nancy Doran of the Maryland Department of Natural Resources, Cynthia Sexton, Bridget Hopkins, Lori Little, Shannon Warren, and the many reenactors at the Jamestown Settlement and Powhatan Indian Village. While this is a work of fiction, I have strived to make this book as accurate and true to life as possible. Any inaccuracies is it still contains are entirely my own. Thank you.